0: Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and this is Rules-Based Disorder on Colin. As I always do with these episodes, I'm going to open the floor for people to ask questions, to join the chat. We can have a discussion, so please go ahead and join the queue here, and you can ask any questions that you'd like. I'm just going to begin talking about what's going on in California, in Los Angeles right now. It is really significant. I've been doing a lot of coverage of this at multipolarista.com. People might think that I'm talking about this too much, but I I really think that we need to understand the historical significance of what we're seeing. Very rapidly, U.S. hegemony in Latin America is declining, and we're seeing many countries in the region, not just the countries that have revolutionary socialist governments, but also governments that are more center-left are standing up against the US. This is really incredible. So for people who don't know, on June 6th, a summit organized by the US government just opened and it's called the Summit of the Americas. Now the Summit of the Americas goes back to the 1990s when Bill Clinton in 1994 created the first Summit of the Americas. We have to understand this in the historical context of the end of the First Cold War, the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, the right-wing counter-revolution in Nicaragua. This is before Hugo Chavez came to power in 1999. So the only leftist government in Latin America was in Cuba. There were right-wing or neoliberal governments in every single country in Latin America, except for Cuba. And the US government, in 1994 convened the Summit of the Americas to try to bring these countries together and create a free trade zone dominated by U.S. corporations. It's not a coincidence that the same year that the first Summit of the Americas was held in 1994 was also the beginning of NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, Also, that was brokered by the Bill Clinton administration. This is at a time when, as Francis Fukuyama, the bogus, sophist, fake philosopher, claimed, it was the end of history, right? The idea was that neoliberalism was the dominant economic system. Capitalism was the dominant economic system. Bourgeois democracy was the end of history. And Bill Clinton was trying to create this free trade zone in Latin America so that US corporations could dominate the entire region. And now here we are 18 years later and a significant part of the region, basically half of the countries, over one third of the population in the region is boycotting the summit of the Americas going on in Los Angeles right now. This has its origins in the US government's refusal to invite Cuba Venezuela and Nicaragua, which uncoincidentally all have socialist governments, the Donald Trump administration, specifically Trump's national security advisor, the neoconservative Iraq war architect, John Bolton, referred to those three countries as the so-called troika of tyranny. They're the troika of resistance. And the Biden administration, Its rhetoric has slightly changed, but its policies have continued almost 100% of what Trump was doing. And we see that this angered a lot of countries in the region who could see very clearly that the U.S. was trying to impose its will on the region. And Mexico's president, left-wing president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who is not a socialist, he's a progressive and he's a nationalist, he has an independent policy independent foreign policy, independent politics. He brings back the legacy of left-wing nationalist leaders in Mexico, like La Cardenas, Lazaro Cardenas. And what happened is Amlo said, I am not going to attend the summit if the U.S. excludes countries in the region. And that was clearly a sign to the U.S. that it should invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, and the U.S. refused. So then the pressure increased, and we saw the socialist president of Bolivia, Luis Arce, said the same thing. If the U.S. does not invite every country in the Americas, that is Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, I am not going to attend. And then the new left-wing president in Honduras, Samara Castro, said the same thing. She tweeted that it is not a summit of the Americas if all of the countries in the Americas are not invited. And what happened is they put their money where their mouth is. And the presidents of Mexico, Honduras and Bolivia refused to attend this U.S. government sponsored summit in L.A. Now, furthermore, we also saw the president of Guatemala, who is a right winger, and he had different reasons his name is Alejandro Jamatay. He also refused to attend the summit and another country in Central America, El Salvador, led by this very strange authoritarian technocratic millennial president, Nayib Bukele. He also refused and Bukele and Jamatay, they didn't they didn't boycott because of the exclusion of Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua. They boycotted because they are having major disagreements with the Biden administration Because they're a little too independent for the Biden administration. Although although they're not leftists, they don't like that the Biden administration is telling them what to do and bossing them around, especially around the issue of immigration. So we have Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Mexico, Bolivia, Honduras and El Salvador. Their leaders are boycotting the U.S. Summit of the Americas. This is completely historic. I mentioned, you know, just 18 years before, uh, sorry, why did I say 18? Uh, That's very bad math on my part. 28, 28 years before the US government convened this first summit, and now here we see it's falling apart. And I want to point out the historical significance of this because in it, wait, man, uh, 28, I don't know what number I was saying earlier, 28, man, uh, this is, anyway, so 28 years later. And there's another really important element of this that I think needs to be understood, which is Mexico, historically, really since the 1970s and 80s, has become a significant kind of U.S. proxy, or it had become a significant U.S. proxy until AMLO, Andres Manuel López Obrador came to power in Mexico in 2018, and we should understand how significant it is. Mexico is the second largest country in Latin America after Brazil, which is a massive country. Mexico has the second largest economy, and Mexico still today is the U.S.'s top trading partner, and the U.S. is Mexico's top top trading partner. Furthermore, back in 2002, in April of 2002, so exactly 20 years ago, the right-wing president of Mexico, Vicente Fox, was hosting the Summit of the Americas in Monterrey, the major city in the north of Mexico. And Cuba was invited. However, he he called Fidel Castro, who at the time was the president of Cuba still, and Vicente Fox the right wing president of Mexico from the conservative PAN party PAN National Action Party he told Castro he said look you can attend but you can you have to eat and you have to leave and he called Fidel Castro and told him look i have a 30 minute slot you can meet with me you can eat lunch from 1 to one thirty, and then at one thirty you have to leave the country. You have to go back to Cuba. And for obvious reasons, this was extremely impolite and brutal. So Fidel was angry, and he published the recording of the phone call. So this is completely true, completely uh, authentic. And in fact, when people claimed it was a fake recording, Fidel said, I swear this is a true recording. If someone proves that it's false, I will resign as president of Cuba. I mean, it's completely true that it was a real recording. And this led to a massive crisis between Cuba and Mexico. And Castro said that, that Cuba-Mexico relations were on pause. Now, why did Vicente Fox tell him that? Of course, because the U.S. government told Mexico to pressure Cuba to come, eat, and leave. And in the phone, in the recording, you can hear Mexico's right-wing president, Vicente Fox, saying, "You, uh, Fidel, you can eat and you can leave because as soon as you finish eating at 1.30, George Bush is going to arrive and I don't want to embarrass him. <laughs> so that was how subordinated Mexico's politics were to the U.S., where the president of Mexico was saying yeah uh, I'm not gonna be able to meet with you for a long time you have to leave my country because my boss George Bush is gonna arrive so in 20 years there's been a complete 180 not even just in 20 years in the case of Mexico in four years since 2018 there's been a complete 180 so I really want to underscore how historically significant this is also in Honduras In Honduras, there was a left-wing government led by the elected president, Manuel Zelaya, from the... Well, his current party is now called the Libre Party, which is... uh, He's moved to the left. In 2009, the U.S. government backed a military coup that overthrew Zelaya and installed a right-wing puppet regime. And until 2021, until last year, Honduras, for those 12 years, from 2009 and 2021, was dominated by a right-wing puppet regime. And now Honduras' government has said that it's not attending the summit in protest of U.S. government policies. Once again, a complete 180. So really, I think this is a historic development. Right now, there are also thousands of people protesting in Los Angeles. There are people from across the United States, people from Canada, There's also a lot of people from Latin America because there is a summit organized in protest of the U.S. government-sponsored Summit of the Americas. It's called the People's Summit for Democracy, and this was organized by a bunch of groups, including the Answer Coalition, including Code Pink, including the People's Forum. And including the social movement arm of the Bolivarian Alliance, which is called the ALBA, A-L-B-A. And the social movement arm of the ALBA is independent of but affiliated with the Bolivarian Alliance, which is the political coalition and economic coalition of 10 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, including... Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Bolivia, and also six countries in the Caribbean. And I just published an interview with the executive secretary of the ALBA. His name is Sasha Jorenti, And I published that. You can find a video of it. It was in English. You can find a video of it at multipolarista.com. And I also there, I published a transcript of the full interview and I mean, he made very similar comments talking about how historic this was saying that he said things are changing. And he said not only in Latin America, but also in Asia. And he said the U.S. empire, its power is declining. So, I mean, this I would invite everyone to check out that interview. This is, I think, a really historic development. And the the protests we've also seen going on. Have been really impressive. I got to give a lot of credit to PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and also Breakthrough News. PSL had an activist disrupt, protest the Summit of the Americas, and call out the OAS, Organization of American States, Secretary General Luis Almagro, for supporting the far right coup in in Bolivia in 2019 that overthrew the democratically elected president Evo Morales. You can find video of that going around Twitter, Breakthrough News, published video of it. And also Eugene Perrier at Breakthrough News, he confronted U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in the Q&A at the Summit of the Americas and asked him great questions about why, you know, the right wing puppet regime, the unelected U.S. Well, elected on paper, the completely undemocratic, illegitimate puppet regime in Haiti, they were invited, but the elected governments in Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba, which by the way, has democratic elections, which you, you never hear about in Western media, they were not invited. So Eugene Perrier had a really great question calling out Anthony Blinken and also friend of the show, Abby Martin, who has a show here at Colin as well. Check out Dost. It's her great show. Abby Martin confronted Anthony Blinken and called him out on his double standards on apartheid Israel and Saudi Arabia saying, you know, the U S government hasn't done anything about their killing of journalists, especially the recent Israeli sniper killing of Palestinian American Al Jazeera journalist, Shireen Abu Akal. And that, that was also an incredible video because you can see that Anthony Blinken says, well, we don't know the facts. The facts haven't been established. And you can hear Abby Martin say, yes, they have, CNN analyzed the video. And even CNN admitted that an Israeli sniper killed Shireen Abu Akla. And again, you can just hear Anthony Blinken say, well, uh, it's really sad about what happened to to Shireen Abu Akhla, but we're going to investigate, we need an independent investigation. Just refusing to acknowledge that the Israeli apartheid regime backed by the U.S. murdered a Palestinian-American journalist. And it's already, I mean, obviously the Palestinians who are regularly killed by the Israeli apartheid regime don't get any attention. But this is an example of the U.S. Secretary of State refusing to defend a citizen of his country who was murdered by Israel. And he sits there and says, well, uh, we don't know who did it. Yes, we know who did it. CNN admitted who did it. So, I mean, that's just another element of all of this. It's not even directly related to Latin America, but once again, it shows the incredible hypocrisy of the U.S. government that claims that Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba supposedly violate human rights. Meanwhile, it doesn't even defend the human rights of its own citizen who was murdered by Israel for being a journalist. So, overall, I mean, this summit is really revealing. It says a lot about U.S. government policy, and it says a lot about the shift in the world that we're seeing. You know, the show, I I called this show Rules-Based Disorder because the U.S. government constantly claims to be defending the so-called Rules-Based Order, which is the U.S. government's attempt to try to rewrite international law. And instead of saying the international law-based order, they say the rules-based order, of course, in which the U.S. makes the rules and orders everyone around. Well, this is an example of the actual rules-based disorder that we're seeing in the world, where you know countries that refuse to bow to the U.S. are not invited to these international conferences, and the U.S. Secretary of State refuses to defend citizens who were murdered for being journalists. And finally, before I jump to the questions here... I want to add one other thing. The most incredible uh, aspect of hypocritical aspect of the summit of the Americas is that Spain was invited. Spain, which again, every time I've looked at a map in my entire life, Spain has never been in the Americas. Maybe the US rules-based order has a different map of the world. It really it does because what they call the international community is all the white countries. But Spain was invited to the summit of the Americas, but not multiple country multiple countries in the Americas. So countries representing over two hundred million people in the Americas: Mexico, Bolivia, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Their leaders, their heads of state, are not attending the summit, but. There are politicians from the former colonizer of Spain who were invited to participate. Which, for me, I mean, it just really reflects what the actual U.S. Summit of the Americas is. It's as President Amlo said of Mexico. He said, "It's the Summit of America's friends." And of course, when he said America's friends, he means the United States' friends. And the secretary, the executive secretary of the Alba the Bolivarian Alliance, Sasha Jorenti. In the interview that I did with him, he said, we consider this to be neither a summit nor of the Americas. And the fact that European colonialists are invited, I mean, I think it says a lot about how it's not of the Americas. But with that said, I'm going to jump now to, I have two questions, one from Leandro and one from Hussein. So I'll go first to Leandro Peralta.
1: Hello, Ben. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, to your comment about uh, them inviting Spain, I was just remembering, uh, I'm from Argentina and I remember when our former president, Mauricio Macri, uh, in an event where the, the king was president, he said something about their king and trying try to say, like rewrite history and saying how the equivalent to uh, Simon Bolivar for Argentina, Don José San Martín, that He must have been gutted that he had to uh, fight for independence of Spain, like (laughs) apologizing for the independence. That was terrible. And and the other thing, which takes me like Mauricio Macri and and Juan Guaido, this fake president of Venezuela, always remind me of each other Uh, because they they are very similar. uh, Though Mauricio Macri was more successful, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I wanted to, to, to know if you would like to comment about. Uh, the the hilarious uh, episode that happened today with the new Secretary of State, State of Biden, that she was asked a question about Bolsonaro attending this summit. summit, And her reply was something about them recognizing, still recognizing Juan Guado, she said, as the <laughs> the Venezuelans. Like, that was not the question. Do you know even what Brazil or Venezuela are? Uh, that was very embarrassing. And, and yeah, it's just... Uh, uh, is it really bad timing considering what you're saying about uh, the failure of this summit? And finally, uh, my question is, is more about these uh, alternate summit that during your interview with uh, the Bolivian ambassador, he's, he, you, you discussed the, this uh, alternative summit that's also happening in the US and that he considered to be more legitimate. And also the other thing that happened this week was the the annual meeting of the Bilderberg group that hasn't really been reporting much. And it was like, very, very secretive this time. Uh, but I just want to know how serious that is. And if it's something that that we should uh, consider the, the, the those secret summits as well, uh, that, that happen at the same time. And that's it.
0: Yeah, well, I, I personally don't know much about the Bilderberg summit, other than I mean, it's just a bunch of uh, capitalist elites who get together to talk about how they can better dominate the world. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who focus on those and I don't think they're insignificant. They are significant, but I don't know the specific details other than, again, they're the elite oligarchs, capitalist oligarchs t- working together to to better make corporate profits and, and dominate the economy. But in terms of the alternative summits you were talking about, I mean, there there's one in the U.S. that you mentioned in California going on simultaneously called the People's Summit for Democracy. And and people can go to the website. I think it's a it's People's Summit 2022. I'm pretty let me check it's People's Summit 2022.org. And there are thousands of people from all across the Americas, including labor unions, social movements, women's rights groups, indigenous groups that are participating. There's a series of panels, and by the way, those are all going to be live-streamed online if people want to see them. They've already started. There are also protests and marches outside the Summit of the Americas. There are concerts, and there's other, you know, cultural activities. So it's a three-day thing. It started today. Today is June 8th, and it's going on until the end of the people's, sorry, the end of the Summit of the Americas, June 10th. Now, Sasha Jurenti in the interview, he's the the executive secretary of the ALBA. He also mentioned the other alternative summit of the ALBA, the Bolvarian Alliance, which was held on May 27th in Cuba. And I would invite people to check out the ALBA website. And you can also find it at the ALBA Twitter account or at Sasha Llorenti's Twitter account. It's pretty easy to find any of those. And he has his, has his pinned tweet right now. He has the declaration that was published by all of the Alba members, the ten countries in Alba, and this is the like the final declaration they made after their summit, and it's in both Spanish and English. And very briefly, I'll just summarize some of the main points. So this is a twelve-point uh, declaration that was made by the Alba, and they they call for i um, strengthening ALBA and saying that Latin America and the Caribbean is a zone of peace, which is something that Jorenti emphasized a lot in the, in my interview. And they talk about the importance of defending international law and the UN charter that calls for the non use of threat of the use of force, peaceful settlement of disputes and self determination. So criticizing, you know, warmongering and interventionism. So they reaffirm their, reaffirm their support for multilateralism. And then this is a very important one. Quote, the, the, the Alba, quote, denounces the pretensions of imperialist domination over the peoples of Latin America and the Caribbean to maintain the region divided according to their hegemonic interests. And there's other things, including they reject the arbitrary ideological and politically motivated exclusion of several of the countries from the so-called Summit of the Americas. They support the right of all countries to be invited. They denounce the discriminatory treatment, discriminatory treatment by the United States and et cetera, et cetera. And then they call for an end to the illegal U.S. sanctions on Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. So that, that, that was another important alternative summit that was clearly held to challenge the U.S. summit. And then finally, I want to mention another point because you said, um, Leandro, you said that you're from Argentina. And that's that in Argentina, back in 2005, there was another famous summit of the Americas in Mar del Plata in, in Argentina. And that was when Nestor Kirchner was president. And that was, that, was, that was kind of the first act of major rebellion against the U.S. in the Summit of the Americas. That was when Hugo Chavez was president in Venezuela. And also that was when um, uh, in Brazil, Lula da Silva was president and they, they all criticized the U.S. And especially they put a, through a wrench in the U.S. attempt to create this free trade zone of the Americas, which that was the that was the model that the U.S. was using from NAFTA to impose on the entire region, which is CAFTA. So the U.S. was trying to create this free trade zone for all of the Americas. And Hugo Chavez, Lula Silva, and Nestor Kirchner all opposed this. And that led to the creation of the, the ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance. And I should point out that Cuba was not invited to the Summit of the Americas because Cuba was expelled from the OAS in 1962. But that was also that was when there was a massive switch, uh, Uh, transition going on. So you had Lula in Brazil, uh, Kirchner in Argentina, and Chavez in Venezuela. And then a few years later, you would have Evo Morales in Bolivia. Daniel Ortega came back in Nicaragua. And you had Rajar Correa in Ecuador. And they all joined the ALBA. So I think this is, if we go back to 2005 and, and Argentina played a key role in that and look at the 2005 summit, I think this, this summit this year represents another kind of significant historical development in Latin America, just completely rejecting the U.S.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think it's a really good sign. I I hope that we stop in Latin America swinging from the left to the right, and the the left again, and that we can use this momentum to, to really uh, make a more uh, permanent change in how things are. Run in in Latin America in general.
0: Thank you. Yeah, yeah, especially for Argentina. I mean, uh, I I I didn't mention earlier that, you know, uh, as as you know, I mean, I'm I'm not telling this to you. You know this, but to the other people listening, that Argentina's current president, Alberto Fernandez, you know, he's kind of center left. He is attending the Summit of the Americas, but to his credit. He did say that he's going on behalf of the CELAC, which is the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, and saying that he also criticizes the exclusion of countries. So it's a sign that even the kind of weaker links in the region, even someone like Fernandez, who is not very progressive, not very left wing, is kind of centrist, even he has to, you know, say that he's speaking on behalf of CELAC and not just Argentina at the summit.
1: Yeah, true. All right. Uh, I'll give way to, to the next caller. Thanks, Ben.
0: Thank you, Leandro. All right. Uh, two, two more callers and then I'll start. I'll wrap up here, probably 15 more minutes. So here's uh, Hussein. Go ahead.
2: Hey, what's up, Ben? How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks. Um, yeah, I watched all three of those videos from uh, Eclipse, from Breakthrough News in the summit. And, and they were great. They did a great job. Um, especially Abby, I mean, she really uh, questioned them hard on how uh, an American citizen can be like murdered and without any any uh, pushback against Israel. So, so imagine how much the Israelis get away with on Palestinians. You know, exactly. doing doing. Yeah, I mean, imagine if this is a American citizen who was wearing a bulletproof vest and who's a known journalist and wearing a helmet and they snipe her like right in between her vest and, and like, imagine how much they're doing to Palestinians. Um So yeah, and, and but those videos were really good. Abby did an amazing job. It's really good to see good journalism like that because it gives you hopes and makes you happy to have some pushback against these guys because this really... Uh, You know, in the long run, I mean, these kind of things are really important to hold uh, accountable. Um, But, yeah, aside from that, I I live here in Los Angeles and I talk to a lot of uh, Mexican-Americans or Mexican immigrants about AMLO. And like nine out of ten of the people that I talk to don't like AMLO. And I'm guessing I don't watch any Spanish or listen to any Spanish TV. But I'm guessing the Spanish TV stations here are pretty much uh, mainstream media similar to like what mainstream media is in English. Like there's no uh, like uh, independent or, or left view in Spanish television that's out here because they, they say stuff like, oh, he's building a train and he's like blocking off some forest or he's uh, Amlo's ruining the forest by building a train. And I tell them, but that train could be really important or they'll have uh, reasons why he's hurt the economy. Uh, but I, but I tell them, well, um, nationalizing lithium seems like it would be really good for Mexicans, things like that. So, so is it that the mainstream media in Spanish is pretty much, uh, corrupt like that? What do you think?
0: Yeah, great question. First of all, before answering that good question, I'll point out that uh, let's not forget that back in in two thousand three, the Israeli part of the regime also killed another U.S. citizen, Rachel Corey, who was a, a Palestine Solidarity activist, and she she was putting her body on the on the line as a, in a protest against demolitions, and the Israeli bulldozer just ran her over and killed her, and the U.S. government didn't do anything. I mean, so. It's really it really is incredible that this continues, you know, 19 years later, the Israeli apartheid regime kills a Palestinian-American journalist who also was working for Al Jazeera, which is still a very mainstream media outlet and zero consequences. It really is incredible. But anyway, um, as for your question about AMLO, yeah, the media, especially in the U.S., is extremely biased and very right wing, but also in Mexico. The vast majority of the media in Mexico is insanely propagandistic against against AMLO. And this is despite the fact that polling has consistently, since he was elected in 2018, shown that he has approval rating of between 60 and 70 percent of roughly two thirds of Mexicans. He's very popular. He's one of the most popular leaders in Mexico's modern history up there with, I mentioned, Cárdenas, uh, who is this... Uh, you know, progressive nationalist figure who nationalized the oil and created the state oil company Pemex and redistributed land to peasants and stuff. So, I mean, the media in Mexico is extremely biased. In fact, recently, one of the main newspapers published this crazy photo of a gun pointed at AMLO, like threatening to kill him. And there are a lot of right-wing media oligarchs, like in the U.S., you know, like uh, also in Australia with Rupert Murdoch. There are these Mexican media oligarchs who have just published insane fake news and propaganda about him nonstop since he was elected in 2018. But, you know, the media has less and less influence, fortunately. And we see that in the fact that he's still very popular. So as for his his projects, like, for instance, the, the Tren Maya, which you were talking, referencing the Maya train. I mean, there's so much propaganda about this and they're probably just repeating media propaganda. So the Maya train project was approved by indigenous leaders in the area where he's building it. This is not like the U S that builds oil pipelines across indigenous land and doesn't get approval from indigenous communities that he got approval from indigenous communities. He actually participated in like an opening ceremony with indigenous leaders and This is a project that, yes, it will destroy some land, but that's what development has to do. I mean, obviously, you have to balance development with environmental protection, but you can't develop your country without some environmental destruction. That's what roads do. That's what railroad infrastructure does. And he's trying to help develop the southern part of Mexico, which has been long ignored by the federal government, which is the poorest part of the country. And create jobs and create more opportunity for public transportation and infrastructure to move to connect the north and central and southern part of Mexico. So, I mean, people criticizing that, it's especially when they're not even in Mexico, when they're in the US, it's just really hypocritical and it shows how out of touch a lot of people are. And then as for his other projects like nationalizing lithium, and and renationalizing the oil that was partially privatized by his predecessor, Enrique Peña Nieto, I mean, first of all, those are very popular decisions that are supported by the majority of people in Mexico, according to polls, but also, I mean, how I don't get how people can oppose that. Obviously, yes, Mexico and all countries on Earth need to eventually transition toward renewable energy, but the burden is not on poor countries in the global South that are developing. The burden is on... I mean, the rich imperialist countries that already developed their economies based on fossil fuel extraction. And of course, I should point out that Mexico's fossil fuel footprint is still tiny compared to the fossil fuel footprint of the US and Europe. So yeah, I mean, unfortunately, those talking points are largely just a reflection of what what is said in the media.
2: Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, another thing, let's uh, go back to Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera has really good journalists, like Shereen, uh, may she rest in peace, was a great journalist who has been in Al Jazeera since its beginning days. And as a Middle Easterner, yeah, I followed her like for a long time. So she was a very good journalist and they have good journalists. But as an organization, Al Jazeera is very biased. Mm-hmm. If we go back to like uh Iraq war, uh, there in was... Syria. Uh, yeah, yeah. In Syria, they were so wrong on Syria or on the Arab Spring, but even on Iraq, they were receiving uh, instructions on how to report directly from the U.S. And that came out in some WikiLeaks uh, reports. So yeah, Jazeera is very biased, but as they have, they do have good journalists who are very committed to to reporting on Palestine, like Shireen was.
0: Personally. Yeah, especially on. Thank Palestine. you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's always it's always a pleasure talking with you. And um, thank you, Hussein. And uh, I also just wanted to say that that Al Jazeera on Palestine has has always been very good. But, you know, on on Syria, as you know, uh, especially their their Arabic language coverage, they just did insane propaganda, like one of their main hosts did this insane rant where he called for genocide of of Shia. And Alawites, Correct, specifically yeah. in they Syria? Got,
2: yeah, they got Syria very wrong right from the beginning. And that's when they had this journalist named uh, Ghassan bin Jiddo, who left and he started his own TV station called... Well, I don't know if he started it, but he works at... Al-Mayadeen. Uh, Al-Mayadeen. Yeah, yeah, and he's a really good journalist. Thank you yeah, so I'm,
0: much. Have a- thank you, Hussein. Yeah, I'll, I'll, anyone who's listening, I would highly recommend Al-Mayadeen. I... I do interviews with them. I've written articles with them. Like they're excellent. They're really, really good. But yeah, I agree that Shireen Abu Akhla was a great journalist. She represented this kind of old, old guard, like the old school journalists at Al Jazeera before it became like very kind of mainstream. And, And as Hussein said, at first they were a little more critical of the U.S., but then during the Iraq war, the U.S. government threatened them and even reportedly attacked one of their offices. And then they just decided to, uh, you know, to give in to the U.S. So e- even the even though they gave in to the U.S., Israel is still killing their journalists. It's pretty incredible. But um, I'm going to conclude here with a final question from Sele, our uh, compañera in-, in Argentina. So Sele, go ahead.
3: Hi, I'm not going to call always, but first thing, Al uh, I, I wanted to ask a question about that because it's, I always I watch it because if you know who the owners are, of course you can guess the bias. and, and yeah,
0: they are the monarchy of Qatar.
3: <laughs> yes, they are very pretty critical of the U.S. I, I must say, at least in the English language. And actually, it's very funny because they, they and they have very good documentaries. But what? I find is that they set an agenda that if you look to other international channels, uh, they really, then you, of course, you can trust them or you go and search yourself something else. But they have very good documentaries and, very, and they cover like everything. It's things that you wouldn't find out that are happening if you watch, I don't know, other mainstream international news From Europe or stuff like that, which is something at least. And yes, it's very biased, and some things they are great, and in others it's shameful. But uh, then I would like someday Hussein to give us some more, uh, a more detailed account of that. But there's some embarrassing things to say to to Leandro's comment. Um, Yes, not only uh, Macri uh, thanked or something like that, the kings of Spain, but uh, he also, I don't know if I told you, but you know, he uh, trafficked uh, uh, munitions and other different uh, arms for the riots for the coup in Bolivia. Mm -hmm.
0: And yeah been yeah after, after the coup in Bolivia in 2019 the right wing Macri government in Argentina gave weapons to the Bolivian no, after coup regime it to was,
3: help. it was before sadly apparently it some days before they were already sending them so they knew before <laughs> yes and we don't have money to send anyone anything so if you ever think you can because this happened before Uh, During uh, during a Peronista, actually, uh, that uh, trafficked weapons to Ecuador and Croatia when the war in the Balkans was going on. And there there is, I mean, there wasn't, I'm not making this up, I mean, this president... uh, had uh, three months in prison or something like that for blowing up a factory to cover that up. I mean, it was legalized. Like, they w- went through legal and they found him guilty. They never put him in prison because it was the president. But and he stayed in the senate. But uh, there's no way that Argentina could could go to Croatia or send send weapons to Croatia by themselves without the US knowing. Yeah, but
0: exactly.
3: I, I'm guessing that the, there was a link between Macri sending the... I'm, I'm sure there is. I don't know if you can find out how, but they knew before. Apparently, they were sending a few days before they were already sending ammunition. Which is, I mean really, really telling. And, well, then I have to say that one more thing I wanted to add that about the CELAC. That is, uh, yes, Fernandez is in in a mess. And and every time he opens his mouth, he makes everything
1: work.
3: It's unbelievable the thing. Oh, no, no. It's like a a, a, a South American Biden. I mean, he... (laughs)
0: But much younger. He doesn't have the excuse of age.
3: No, no. He confused a, a singer. No, no, no. The things in, in in front of the Raiders of pain, uh, the king of pain, no, the and um, the other, the handsome one, Pedro Sanchez. Uh, yeah, yeah. He confused um, uh, Octavio Paz with a singer from here, and he quote oh, no. the wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. don't really, know uh, no, for, for
0: people who don't, for people who don't know. Uh, uh, when, he, when Fernandez was speaking with the, the President of Spain, the Prime Minister of Spain, and he said, um, "The Mexicans came from the Maya, the Brazilians came from the, the forest, and we Argentines came from on boats: oof, oof.
3: No, no, I, 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 how? That's, that's, even, that's from a, a song that it's meant to be ironic. I mean it's not even that supports because he sings now. In every act. Now he sings, he plays the guitar and he sings because that was what that we needed, a bad singer. And well the thing is that he uh helped Evo a lot. So he's not uh, in a bad relation with Maduro nor with anyone. Uh, Evo was here for a long time and he went with Fernandez together, came back, went back to Bolivia and even our, our journalists, they, were, they had to be taken out of Bolivia. I don't know if you know that they had to be taken out, but they had to go... The, the army, our army had to go to pick them up in Bolivia because they couldn't leave the country. They were in the embassy and they were accused of sedition.
2: Wow.
3: They were Argentinian, so it makes no sense. And not only that, but they they, they the the government publish their faces and names so they were not only afraid for the police but they were like and it was really fun because uh, you could see like if you have Fox news reporter and msnbc and i don't know the most leftists that you can imagine all together in the embassy that is not very big and yes they had to be rescued so so the, the relations, that's what I wanted to say, that the relations are not so bad. I mean, I think Boric must have the same thoughts. I don't think Boric agrees with this, but he has, like, he's very, very precarious situation in in a sense that the, anyone in the country who has money doesn't want him and is going to do anything. So I, I think he, there is this, these things were, I mean, this is not to defend Fernandez, please, don't get me wrong. But <laughs> no, really. But they, I think that there are no angels in the left, nor in the right, nor, I mean, and they wouldn't, I mean, they, even they have the best of intentions. Uh, at one point, they crash with the system. And I think they will have to do, I add, for instance, I don't know, Lula in, in Brazil, before Gilma uh, started to clean up all the Lava Jato. I mean, I wouldn't blame him if he had to work with that.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I, and I wouldn't think he's corrupted, because the things he accomplished for Brazil during that time was immense, yeah. I mean, really huge. So if he maybe he started to tackle corruption... He wouldn't have done any of those things, and he would have ended up like Gilma, Gilaco. Yeah. So I, I think that uh, sometimes they have to do a lot of things. the things, and I think that um, AMLO also. I mean, you can find things in if you can critic Anglo's uh, relations with the press or or the beginning of the COVID when he was like with the Sagrado Corazon. I mean, they all have things. And I think it it doesn't make anyone any any favor if we don't recognize that they are, like, uh, they are leaders and they are, they have their mistakes, but they also have to compromise sometimes uh, to to accomplish. I I, I love Mujica, I told you that. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't compromise anything, but he couldn't do anything. He did nothing. (laughs) He couldn't accomplish. And and it's logical, I mean, there was he was he was left by himself i mean even his vice president well let's not talk about our vice president but our vice vice president talking about her uh she's um yeah they have a big fight with fernandez now but uh nevertheless and my question i wanted to ah, i wanted to say this there's a lack uh this you know can you explain what that is Oh, you did it already?
0: Yeah. It is <laughs> it, any, sorry. Did, I, I, sorry, I cut you off. There was there anything else?
3: No. This, I wanted to. Well, you can explain what the Slack is. I wanted to tell you now that, uh Fernandez was trying to make a meeting of the Selac in, uh, in in Los Angeles at the same time, but and nobody wanted to, so he had to shut up and go back to nothing. And now, everybody's telling, I mean, like Maduro is saying that, oh, Fernandez is going to be our voice there, and he's, he's pressuring him to, uh, to make, to get a meeting of the select, but not in Los Angeles, in a place like Argentina. And the truth is that and Maduro and um, other, <laughs> and other leaders have this uh, international capture. I don't know how to say it. So they have to avoid that, and, and I would like to see how they do that. How he manages to, to stay good with, with South America and, and the U.S. at the same time. And the question is, first. Um, do you is do you think that it's more that uh, the left is getting together, that America is getting weaker, or that uh, finding like China, for instance, other ways that not be only dependent on the U.S. Uh, for for money, actually, or for credit, or for anything is that uh they found this way to be more independent or to get more voice or to say no to, even if it is just a meeting, to say no to the U.S. Or or is it more than, you know? Why, why is it? Because there they they could be many reasons. Um, and I, it's, not, it's a lot of things that came together. I think it had, lots of it had to do with funding. And with uh, his their inability or their, for instance, in Bolivia, they, they haven't had the success they used to have. They tried with Guaido in Venezuela and they like crashed. They tried with um, in Bolivia with Cháñez and unsuccessful. I mean, it, it's not the 70s anymore. So uh, I don't know if it, it is that uh, the in here governments are less afraid of being toppled by the US because they haven't been successful or if it's that they don't depend as much with about money because they have other partners like China or, I don't know, they, they, or Indonesia now, I think, or stuff like that. And, well, that first.
0: Great. Well, Uh, there's a few questions there so I'll try to I'll try to answer them all I'll start with the question at the end so what is happening I think it's all of those things that you mentioned so the first and foremost the most important factor is the rise of China and also Russia but especially China because Russia is an important political power and in some ways economically it's significant in terms of the Russian military industry and in terms of Russian energy but Latin America is not really relying on Russian energy. So for in terms of Russia, uh, you know, the alliance with Russia in some ways is not nearly as important as the re- alliance with China, which economically has become obviously the world's other major economic pole. It's the second largest economy according to GDP after the US or according to purchasing power parity, it's the largest economy in the world. And in Latin America, China has become the top trading partner of many countries, including we even see that some of the right wing governments in the region. So, like for instance, Lasso, Guillermo Lasso, in, in Ecuador, he has made sure to maintain a positive uh, alliance w- or positive relations with China because China and Ecuador's economic relations are so important. And even in Chile, the former right wing president Piñera, Sebastián Piñera. Even he made sure to be very nice to China because of how close their economies are. So I think that has opened a lot of political space for left wing leaders in the region to criticize the U.S. Of course, you know, Lasso and Piñera, the right wingers, they support the U.S. But what they do is they they work with the U.S., but also economically try to to do deals with China. Whereas we see, you know, uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, also Bolivia, And increasingly Brazil, um, especially before Bolsonaro came in, they were all working economically very closely with China. And that gave them breathing space to criticize the U.S. and maintain a more independent policy. So I think that that's the most important factor. But then you mentioned a few other things. I mean, there is a serious crisis inside the U.S. in the U.S. political and economic system. We've seen since 2008. The economy, many economists say that it's really been in permanent recession. According to GDP statistics and other economic measurements, the US economy has grown, but a lot of that growth has been because companies just buy back their own stocks and that contributes to a supposed rise in GDP. So it's all just financial. It's financial capital, it's not real capital. It's not real production and it's moving around numbers on a computer. Mm -hmm. And further sorry no no
3: exactly yes
0: and furthermore you know the statistics about employment are also pretty shady in the u.s because a a lot of the uh, since 2008 a lot of the new jobs that were created were part-time jobs and a lot of those jobs were also you know precarious jobs like uber driving or delivering food it's not It's not like a wage job that you have and you get consistent pay. It depends on, you know, whether or not you're going to have your Uber drives this week. So, I mean, economically, the U.S. is in this crisis and it's becoming more and more financialized. And the economy is based on gambling, basically. And the Federal Reserve spent billions of trillions of dollars bailing out shareholders and big banks and corporations at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So the economy is in a dire situation. And then the political situation in the U.S. is just completely untenable, where everyone around the world can see that Biden can't accomplish anything, even though he controls the White House. He has a majority in the House, and he technically has a very slim majority in the Senate, and he still can't get any legislation through. He hasn't been able to accomplish anything. And the two parties are constantly at each other's throats, even though they dis- they agree on most policies. But there's just this constant partisan battle in the U.S. that has really paralyzed things. So I think a lot of countries in the world, even countries that don't even have, you know, anti-imperialist governments, including in Europe, they kind of see what's going on in Washington, and they are trying to find new alternatives. And we even saw before... Russia's military operation in Ukraine, we saw that France under Macron, who is a, you know, a neoliberal banker, but even Emmanuel Macron in France has been talking about the need to create an, a European army and an independent foreign policy in Europe. So in Latin America, I mean, clearly, a lot of leaders are seeing the same thing. So I think all of those factors play in. And then finally, there's the factor of the left being very well organized in a lot of countries. And the right wing governments being very uh, discredited and corrupt, so I think all of those factors play in. And and then finally, as for your other question about um, the Celac, and and uh, you mentioned Macri giving weapons to the Bolivian coup regime. I mean, I, I also should mention that that Macri's government in Argentina also made plans to launch a potential military invasion of Venezuela. No, the actually.
3: Yeah, actually, I, 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 wanted. Yeah, I read what you wrote about that. I, I, there was this, this. Uh, I, I think they tried to convince him, and they couldn't even convince him, which is really says something about the US. They even said Mike Pence and I, I really, really, really I, I'm I'm afraid that Macri wins another election. It's not to defend him. But I think the thing there is that they didn't plot him, that they were trying to convince him to agree to invade Venezuela and and he he they couldn't even convince him.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, well yeah, yeah. I agree with you, but we do have the plans that um, Horacio Verbisky, the Argentine journalist, got access to these documents yes, showing yes. the plans that the Argentine military had made. But, but yeah, what I agree. Plans, that...
3: what, what Argentine military? <laughs> we <laughs>
0: exactly. don't have
3: anything. We had one submarine and we lost it with 40 <laughs> people inside. And we were looking in the... No, we have nothing we don't have, we don't have, we don't have, the other day there was a talking, the, there was an expert talking about the military and but some very serious with a journalist I respect a lot. And uh, he was talking about how many planes that did Russia had and how many um Ukraine, no? And the journalist asked him, because we are the center of the world, he asked him, and how many do we have? And he said, war planes, zero don't have anything <laughs> anything so that's that's what what i wonder i mean i think that those those plans might have been like um a discussion um like a okay i'll send you let's do this and the, i can send you uh an amazing discussion about but it's a video chavez uh, it was chavez it was uh, fidel and Maradona, on how to invade wow. uh, Malvinas? No, no, that's that's that priceless. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> please, <laughs> please
0: send me that video. I yeah, don't I, mean, know I to
3: send. do you have an, a, an address in or algo? Yeah, um, I,
0: okay. I do, and also on Twitter, if you follow me, my DMs are open. I
3: have to open Twitter. I, right. I forgot the, the user. Yes, I will. Well, but, and, uh, and I will,
0: I will, I did want to say really briefly also that. In terms of, um, the operation that according to the plans, it would have been done in collaboration with the Brazilian and Colombian militaries. So I think. Ah, okay. So, that, so if you look at the plans, look at the map that, that was obtained by Horacio Verbitsky, the Argentine journalist, you can see that it was like a three front invasion and Brazil would invade from its border. Argentina would invade from its border and Colombia no, would invade from its border. We don't
3: have any border with with invade what? Venezuela.
0: No, through Brazil I'm saying and Colombia. So, uh, our, uh, because so
3: Argentina doesn't have any
0: border with Venezuela. No, I'm saying if you look at the Ah, the
3: map okay. Okay, okay, I I I, I check it again. And I I I really No, but Argentina know. has
0: a br- has a border with Brazil, right?
3: Argentina yes.
0: No, that's what I'm saying, is Argentina would send its troops through Brazil into Venezuela, and then Colombia would send its troops across its border with Venezuela.
3: No, I... So it would be through
0: Argentina's border with Brazil.
3: I really believe that that was a plan. I really believe that that was a plan. What I'm saying is that it was so unpopular... Oh, for sure. At the end, they couldn't even convince Bolsonaro and Macri, I mean... Duque was more prompt to, but it was so unpopular. It was so ridiculous to invade Venezuela. I mean, the harm that they would have caused is immeasurable. That actually, sorry to cut
0: you off. I also just went back to the to to this uh, the article in El de La Luna, and it also says that. So it says there were three corredores, three corridors, and one of them would have also been the Argentine military invading across the Colombian border. Which we is insane. The, Why does insane. Colombia need Argentine insane. troops?
3: <laughs> no, uh, besides that, I mean, you have to go from Argentina to Colombia. I mean, you have to go through Bolivia, the whole of Peru, Ecuador, <laughs> and you get to Colombia. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the most brilliant. Maybe some Argentinian did the planning on the <laughs> of the map. Plan. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. But the thing is, it's, it's, I, I mean, I... I was so relieved that he said no, but uh, it, it, but uh, uh, Venezuelans here wanted to. Well, that's another story. Uh, like, what what different migration of Venezuelans went to the poor ones that went with nothing to to uh, countries that were close, and the other that migrated in planes to to far to farther away countries, and the mentality that. Is so different, and the stories are just so different, and the, the points of view. I'm not saying these people were lying, but their points of view tell you a lot about the the reality there. And I'll end with something that you will like. There was a artists, not left wing artists, but but any means. But they sent, they were asked uh, commissioned a portrait of the kings of Spain. And they do uh, art with things. Like they do art with different weird elements. And they uh, they they choose that when they 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 ask for the money, little mirrors, color mirrors. And they say that they told the Spanish that it was because the people in Spain see themselves reflected on the <laughs> on the kings and all that and they sent uh, little mirrors of like you know the ones that Spaniards gave the aborigines in, in America as mm-hmm. es espejitos de colores mm-hmm. and they did it with that um, <laughs> and they and they sold them to them at very high price. Oh, so yeah, yeah. that was that was good. I think that was funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye
0: well thank you, no, gusta thank you. Con usted. I
3: will send you some info sí, hasta sí. bye bye sí. Porfa. Sí.
0: all right well I do I do have to uh, wrap up I, I have something else I have to do but very briefly because Mar- oh I guess Martin just left Martin I was gonna very briefly I'll take your question I do have to run but here's Martin
4: Hey, Ben. Can you hear me? I can. How are you doing? Good, man. How are you doing today? Good, good. Okay. I'll get to it quick uh, since you got to go. Well, briefly, I just wanted to thank you uh, for doing all that you do. I mean, you were really an entryway for me into like a more internationalist perspective uh, that we really don't get here in the U.S. but, uh, But to my question um one thing that is frustrating for me is like i get you know i get a lot of news from people like you and obviously i get news from journalists but it can be hard to like and maybe you have thoughts on this maybe you don't but it's hard to know like what to do in the united states practically to kind of further a a leftist project i mean i personally i'm an employee ownership lawyer but uh i create employee-owned companies but i don't know beyond that like seems like so much of our hope is abroad. And I don't know if you just had any thoughts, you know, you got to wrap up, but uh, any thoughts on that would be great.
0: Yeah, well, great, great question. It's so important. I mean, I think there's a lot of things. First of all, I think one of the most important things people can and should do is get involved with an organization, because the point of leftist politics is that it's collective and we can't do it individually. I mean, we can help, but it's important to be part of a local I mean, part of an organization, and that could be local, it could be national. So wherever you live, I mean, find like a different group. So, I mean, I personally think one of the best organizations in the U.S. is the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and they have branches across the U.S. But I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I try not to be sectarian. There are good people working in DSA, and I've had criticisms, but they sometimes do good work. So I would get involved, you know, Frizzo is also a group, depending on where you live, FRSO, so Freedom Run Socialist Organization. So there's different groups. And also, you know, those are parties, but get involved in, you can get involved in different campaigns and struggles. So, you know, I have long been involved in the Palestine Solidarity Movement, and there's a lot of work going on around BDS. And also, I know there's campaigns for... Um, you know, migrants' rights, especially if you're like in, like, toward the south and or on a coast. Also, you know, there's a lot of movements for environmental policies and stuff. I mean, the most important thing I would say, which is a cliche, but it's true, is just get involved in an organization because it can be, first of all, it can be kind of alienating and lonely, just kind of, you know, shouting into the digital void of social media if you're just like. talking about politics, so it's good to have, you know, friends and comrades involved, but also, I mean these movements, these groups are how things get done, it's not going to get done through like a small group of people it's going to get done through building a kind of movement and I would just, you know depending on what movement, sorry what issues you're interested in personally or what your politics are like, find one of those groups and get involved especially, I mean I really think that it's important to be in a a socialist, be in a socialist
4: group. Okay. Interesting. I mean, that's helpful. It's good to hear the record PSL. I mean, you know, it's, it's tough to like sort things out between different organizations, right? Like things are so, there's so much like, uh, I don't know, like Western chauvinism and a lot of the left in the U S that, you know what I mean? Like in DSA, like it's hard, like (laughs) you can't even like talk about China or even think about like, I mean, they've had some good statements internationally, but but I hear you. Yeah. I got to, got to get involved and see, see what's what that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Honestly, I, I, I'm not a member, but PSL is extremely impressive. Their politics are really good and especially in international stuff. I mean, I they're excellent and they're also just really impressive organizers. When I lived in New York, they would they would do so much stuff, uh, not only international solidarity, but also stuff against police brutality and migrants rights and, you know, uh, support for uh, like uh, for affordable housing and stuff. So I personally highly recommend them. I'm not a member, but so I I don't want people to think that I'm like trying to recruit here, but I -hmm. think they're really solid. But like I said, I mean, I don't want to be sectarian. I know people in DSA I respect. And the thing about DSA is. Yes, historically on imperialism, they have been very weak, but to be fair to them, in the past few years, as, as, you know, uh, anti-imperialists, especially kind of like the newer generation of younger socialists got involved, they have definitely improved.
4: Cool. All right. Well, that's my question, man. Like I said, thanks for everything you do. It it really uh, following you the past few years has really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. So if you ever feel like you're not making an impact, just know that, that you really are.
0: Thanks, Martin, I really appreciate that. It's always it's always really um, great to hear and, and it's really edifying to hear that I'm having an impact. So I wanna thank you, thank everyone who joined this call. I do two of these a week, so I'm gonna do another one. I'll probably be doing it Saturday or maybe Sunday, um, probably Saturday. So keep an eye out on Twitter, I will announce that. And you can also find all of these episodes If you want to listen to an earlier part you missed or something, you can find them on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. So thank you to everyone, and I'll see you next time.